Well, hello everybody, it's Roscoe here, your host of the My Love of Golf podcast, and thank you once again for tuning in. I really do appreciate your support. If you like what we're doing, please feel free to share the podcast and maybe even jump over to iTunes and leave us a review. It's one way of helping this podcast get into as many ears as possible and sharing what we're doing. Appreciate that. Today's interview is with two young men who have formed what we know as the Rollback Alliance. You may have heard us talking about the Rollback Alliance before. We had an event, or there was an event down at uh, Kingston Heath, Rocket was the inaugural winner of the rollback uh, tournament that they had, but the rollback alliance is more than a tournament, it's a movement. And if you really want to understand what Will and Matt are talking about and the concepts that they present in terms of golf equipment, golf ball technology, and how it affects the game and what their vision is for it moving forward, we well, need to listen to the rest of the interview. There's a lot of stuff being spoken about over the interwebs about the golf ball technology. The two guys that we're talking to today have some very well-considered positions on that. Not everyone's going to agree with it, and that's fine, and they understand that. But the least we can do in the podcast sense is share that with you. They're great guys. They're passionate golfers. They want nothing but the game to grow and be as successful because they're both very much invested in what we do as golfers. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode. Jump over to the socials of the Rollback Alliance. Give them a follow if you do want to learn more, if you do want to follow along as they grow. I'm sure that they would appreciate that. I really do appreciate listening in, as I'm sure that the guys from the Rollback Alliance do as well. Enjoy the listen, and as always, thanks again. and Will Watt from the Rollback Alliance. Welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. It's great to have you guys on. We've been looking forward to this for some time and talking about it. How are you both there? Matt Mollica, how are you first? You well? Well, thanks, Ross. Thanks for having us along. You're right. We have been speaking about it for a little bit. Glad to make it happen. It's, it's going to be a great chat because you guys are a wealth of knowledge and the topic that we will talk about, and I'll let you introduce that topic very shortly. Will, no stranger to the podcast. This is probably, what, your third time on, and we spoke two weeks ago with the uh, launch of your great new product, Lofted, going really well, I believe. Great to have you back on again, mate. Yeah, good to see you again, Ross, becoming a regular thing, uh, which is which is great. Well, you're always welcome. You can be as regular as you like. I like the hat, the rollback hat there, and, and Matt, you, you just pan the camera down there because we might make a bit, bit of video of this. You've got rollback merch. That's the thing. Tiny, <laughs> tiny little bit of it. We don't want to... We don't wanna, do too much of it, but yeah, there's a little bit around. No, very good. Now, for the listeners sitting back at home, thanks for joining us once again. You may have seen or heard of the Rollback Alliance because if you've been active on Twitter, you'll see the guys pop up there. You've maybe heard myself and Rocket talk about it. I'm very, very proud to just re-announce to everyone that the, the Rocket Man, one of the favourites of the podcast, was the winner of the inaugural rollback tournament down there at uh, KH. What a great day that was for uh, the My Love of Golf podcast. But if you haven't heard about it, who wants to who wants to give the quick introduction to, to the Rollback Alliance Matt, that's you. All right. Well, we've been going for probably almost two years now. As most of your listeners will know, uh, Caddy Magazine was Will's idea creation and he's driving that and 
done an amazing job with it. I've been lucky enough to have one or two little things that I've written over the years within the pages of Caddy. And back for volume four, I had written something about the ball going too far. At that time, I was probably arguing with Brandel Chambly over Twitter every so often about how far the ball was going. And I remember that not long after that issue hit the newsstands, Will had spoken to me about trying to do something a bit more substantial and a bit more long-lasting rather than just writing the magazine. And it was probably Will more than me that stumbled upon the idea of forming what is probably an advocacy group. It's probably the best description of what we're doing at the moment. Our mission is really to try and promote more informed and educated discussion about club and ball tech, uh, about the idea of a rollback, which is certainly nothing new, which we'll explore as the podcast unfolds. Will and I tend to steer it a little bit, but we've got some people who assist us with that in all corners of the globe. Uh, and as we've grown over over the months that we've been involved with it, more and more people engage with us on Twitter and Instagram and various other platforms. You're quite sought after for your commentary on the topic, and you know it comes with a great level of experience because you know on Instagram, you know we know your profile is very um, synonymous with the use of hickory clubs. You know you're very passionate about that hickory club. So you know when did rolling back and and bifurcation and all the topics that we're going to talk about now when did that become a a thing for you you know is it related to your passion for hickories and the traditions of the game and you know what what does it go back to there i've played hickories for probably seven or eight years and it was more a curiosity thing that got me started in that and i'll often tell people that the courses that i'd play or my home club is of that age where hickories were in use at the time those courses were designed and built so and, and, and you'll probably get this more than most, Ross. If you, if you said, oh, look, I've, I've got Jack Brabham's car. I could drive around Albert Park or Sandown in that and recreate that experience. Or if Will was a massive tennis fan and said, I could go to Kuyong and play on grass with a wooden racket, and yeah. something that was akin to Rod Lavers. Using those clubs around those courses that were designed in the 20s, it just really, really brought into sharp focus that there was this total disconnect between the scale of the courses and the scale of the ball and equipment that we use today. So, and either of you can you know, come in with this, when the rollback is not really advocating against technology and the growth and the development of equipment from the manufacturer's perspective, is it? Is it, what it, you know, if you, let's talk about the equipment side, because obviously that's where I make a living. Um, how would you see the equipment side being influenced by the concept of the rollback alliance and what you discuss and how you discuss it? Um, well, I think just probably just to define what we think of as a rollback, and it's certainly nothing new. I mean, there's, there's people been writing and talking about the ball going too far or people being able to drive it too far or hit irons too far for more than 100 years. Yeah. Um, and as you know, probably better than most, Ross, there's really tight regulations from the RNA and the USGA regarding ball specifications and clubs coefficient of restitution, all those sorts of things. It's not as if that that area of the game is unregulated. It's it's highly regulated, but Will and I and probably lots of others in favour of a rollback are trying to promote a, a review of those regulations so that things don't quite go as far. We're a bit of a disparate group at Rollback Alliance. Some people really have it close to their heart that we should use less than 14 clubs, which doesn't do too much in terms of distance but it does in terms of the fabric of the game we have one guy who's an advocate for rollback who's really against the use of tees 
which is a bit separate from our core message. We're probably most easily identified as a group suggesting that the ball specs be reviewed so that it spins more and doesn't go quite as far and that primarily driver technology is revisited as well. And I think what you were getting to in terms of the impact that you would see, that would probably be most likely to involve either a reduced driver head size tighter regulations regarding maximum shaft length and revision regarding coefficient of restitution or the CT time that uh, lots of people have become familiar with in, in the last 12 months. How would you articulate you know, the impact that the current regulations have on the game and what are the areas that you think that it is holding the game back? There's several reasons why we probably have reached the position we've reached. Some people think that the game at a pro level is the only area where there needs to be some sort of modification in terms of distance. And so people who argue that position or hold that position are, are probably really in favour of bifurcation. Mm -hmm. So they're probably suggesting a subset of rules for professional golfers. And they'd think that, well, 99.99 of people that tee it up don't have an issue with distance. Will and I and many others within our group, don't want to speak for Will, <laughs> I think I can summarise his position. I hope I can accurately. Um, we're probably of a position where we think that distance is more and more of an issue within the amateur game and recreational game. And so we would not be so much in favour, personally speaking, Will and I, um, not all of our pilots or advocates or people within our group, we'd be, we'd be in favour of a universal rollback where there's one set of rules that's preserved across all of golf that applies to everyone, be it you, me, Roscoe, Will, uh, Rory, anyone. So that is really rooted in uh, a thought uh, that touches on the sustainability of the game, the length that the average suburban course has crept up to these days, water and land use, the time it takes to walk and play 18, uh, safety issues and liability and insurance issues, whole whole range of different reasons. And I guess, you know, those points that you just raised there are, you know, when people are considering the message that you present, it's not just about a golf ball travelling too far. There, as you've just articulated, a whole subset of reasons that the game would benefit from what you're suggesting, basically, yeah? Yeah, uh, for, the, for the good of the game in the long term, um, I feel that the game probably at the pro level, but increasingly so even, or, uh, even at an amateur or recreational level, has probably become a bit big and a bit bloated it's interesting, some of the joys that people are experiencing with golf during the times of the virus, they're walking, yeah. they're zipping around the course a bit faster, the game's a bit pared back and they think, geez, this is good and I'm really enjoying golf in this format. And I think what Rollback Alliance is promoting and championing is, is consistent with that notion. Yeah. And then you know, to counter that, you know, you come back and when the PGA Tour comes back into the game, when they've been absent for a while you know, through the COVID period, and then you see Bryson come back in his new shape and form and hitting 400 and something metre uh, yard drives, it just that really does highlight the fact that it doesn't make sense. In my book, you know, that, that golf ball travelling that far just doesn't make sense. And him as a player will bring himself unstuck or he'll succeed or whatever doing that under the current guidelines. But you can see what it's doing to the courses and the way that they're played and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, the crazy, craziest thing about that, though, Ross, is that people were saying that when John Daly came out. They are yeah, probably saying yeah, exactly what yep. you just said about Bryson back when John Daly came on the scene. And that's we're talking 20 or 30 years ago now. Mm -hmm. So where does it, when, when do we 
draw the line. I guess that's why I sort of wanted to team up with Matt on this. So I read his article in volume four and it was so well articulated, the argument, and it was just staring me in the face that where do you draw the line? We can't just keep going longer and longer and longer because it's um, eventually you end up with, like people are already talking about 9,000, 10,000 yard courses. It's just bonkers. So I think there's an urgency to get this happening now and that's why we're trying to um, kind of gather the forces. There are a lot of people on Twitter we talked about um, kind of shouting matches on Twitter um, when we first met up and talked about it and that's not going to really get us anywhere to actually get some change initiated. Um, so it was trying to bring those voices together and, and make it a bit more coherent. And I think Matt's done a brilliant job, uh, particularly on our Twitter account, in really just bringing together a series of very um, poignant quotes from greats of the game that if you, if you read through our whole Twitter account, I don't know how you could come away without thinking that, hey, this does need to be looked at and pretty urgently. Where have you found the most support? Probably in people of an older demographic, which is a bit of a double-edged sword in terms of support. They can be pretty easily dismissed by some as being old fuddy-duddies who pine for the days of yore. It was better back in their day when they were younger. We've had considerable support from the golf architecture community and, and some critics of a rollback will be equally keen to dismiss their opinions as being very narrow focused um, and perhaps a degree self-serving, which is quite ironic considering where some of that criticism is coming from. There are a lot of people who I think have grown increasingly aware of the, of the, the sustainability issues surrounding the game the longevity of the argument behind a rollback. So it's come from far and wide. It's come from the people in the US, UK, Australia. I think generally people who have thought about the game a little more than just looking at it through the prism of their own games and their own scores. I think that would probably be a uniting factor across all of our uh, supporters. And what about the the agitators or the detractors? You know, what, what have been the upshots of some of those arguments that you mentioned that have come across the Twitter sphere. People that are really wowed by Bryson. Yeah. People that think that distance is good. I'd, I'd like to think that it's sometimes people that don't quite understand the the magnitude of the issue, mm. or they might not be that widely read on the issue. And I'm I'm conscious that sounds a bit condescending, and I don't want to sound like that. So I don't feel don't feel I am like that. Um, I think sometimes people interpret a rollback as us really being anti, anti-athleticism. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the consistent criticisms is that, well, Bryson's optimised his equipment or, yeah, JT's your size and your weight, Matt, but he's worked really hard in the gym and his technique is really, really good and you want to rob him of that. And I, I don't want to do that at all. And I think a lot of detractors... Of, a, of any sort of revised equipment regulations are really critical of those promoting it because they see it as nothing more than robbing the long guy. And uh, that's, that's not what we're about at all. Um, golf, as, as you know, anyone with a passing interest in it knows, is really a game that comprises a wide range of skills. And I think golf today, probably at an elite level, and, and increasingly so at an amateur level, disproportionately rewards driver distance. 
And I think it would be best for the game in the long term if things are recalibrated so that accuracy is a little more handsomely rewarded or it's not just a matter of going to a store and acquiring ball speed um, just through buying the latest driver or having things optimised. Um, the guy who's creative, the guy who's intelligent, the guy who's patient, those skills should be rewarded perhaps a little bit more than they are currently. At the professional level, Adam Scott last year was quite outspoken in an area aligned to this topic, you know, when he was talking about drivers and the advantage that some of the, I guess, lesser quality players and ball strikers on tour were receiving through having more forgiving drivers, as an example. So, you know, he is one of the purest, straightest drivers in the game. That's measured. So his claim was these drivers allow people that aren't as good a ball striker, aren't as straight a drivers to give them a more forgiving position to allow them to be as far as somebody else that maybe isn't as good a ball striker or a good a player. You know, do you remember that that topic that Adam sort of raised? Absolutely. That was after uh, the BMW at Medina last year yeah. and, and Clates wrote about yeah. that tournament that week and talked about how Medina had long been viewed as a brute. Um, the, the winning scores, was it JT that won that week? I think so. I think, um, were really, really low. Brent Snedeker had spoken about the same issue that Adam Scott touched on that week. Um, Jeff Shackelford had tweeted something that week about Thomas hitting a, a wedge from the rough, and the rough was quite deep. You couldn't see JT's shoes. It was no issue. It just hit it high and hoisted it up there and landed it soft and had a short putt. And I think that week was probably one that made a lot of people sit up and take notice. Um, Adam spoke it's quite eruditely, as you said, Ross. Said yeah, that. I've got the quote here, Matt, actually, if you, if you want. Um, yeah. He said, the driver is now the most forgiving club in the bag. It's just swing as hard as you can and get it down there far. It's not a skillful part of the game anymore. And it's really unfair for some guys who are great drivers of the golf ball. He had also said that week, Will, that you can't make courses long enough for us. We're just going to eat them up. Yeah. And and that, uh, and that's, yeah. Um, and for those for those of us of a certain age or those of us who used to, or who, who watch golf of a, of a bygone time, you can't help but think if someone like Norman was around today, that advantage that he had with driver where he had the skill and he had the guts to go at it hard and build a career around long straight driving and, and, and a skill that others didn't possess, he wouldn't have spent those five, six years at world number one. Yeah. Um, he would have had guys who were good but not great hanging with him all the time. And Rory, Adam Scott, a couple of others must look at their contemporaries these days and think, you have no right to be near me. And that's, that's sort of the point I was getting at before where I was saying that speed is, a, is an easily purchased but really important commodity. And, and golf shouldn't be that way. It should be, Martin Slumbers has said, it's about, it's, it's, it's about skill as much as about technology. And, and I think we're losing sight of that a little bit. So for the people that might not have, you know, brushed themselves up with the knowledge on last year's distance report that was presented by the RNA and the USGA, give us an overview of what the outtakes of that were. So they, the RNA and the USGA had embarked on a multi-year study where they'd looked at lots of statistics and published a, quite a large uh, report in excess of 130 pages, an 18-page executive summary it gave them some directions for further study and some possible direction, uh, some possible um, actions in times to come. I think one of the major takeaways was that there's 
likely to be scope in times to come at a professional level for a local rule that facilitates the use of a professional ball. I think that the USGA and RNA also highlighted the fact that they're likely to revise driver design specs in times to come. And I don't think that that was any great secret within the manufacturing fraternity as well. I keep looking at that Mini 1 tailor-made driver and think these guys are already prepared for something that's way less CCs, still quite usable and capable of reasonable distance and familiar to the marketplace. Um, back in 2002, those, those bodies, the RNA and the USGA, had put a, a, a joint statement out about a line in the sand talking about any further increase in distance um, being of concern and being a trigger that would see them act in times to come. And they had suggested in that um, distance report that you quote, Ross, that that line in the sand had been crossed. Some people have hypothesised that ball specs will be revised and that there'll be different specifications regarding dimple patterns, diameter, weight, all sorts of things. But I, I, I think if COVID-19 hasn't, hadn't struck, I think that we would have seen a little more progress stemming from that report and that there would have been something further done about the ball, not necessarily to the point where we would see revised product on shelves prior to the end of this year, but I, th- I think that's where it's going to go in times to come. The, and you pointed me in the direction of the you know, uh, the Friday uh, series of podcasts about the ball, which I found fascinating to you know get that historical insight into the, the three-part series, the gutty, and then the um, and then through to the modern ball, and I I distinctly remember that time when you know we transitioned at sort of that junior and sort of semi elite sort of junior area from Serling cover balls to blatters, and then it went back to the professional and and I just can't help but think that somewhere back there is some part of the solution that that we're talking about. And maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me I'm wrong, but you know those times when we were playing with that type of ball, you know, the blatter and then the Titleist Professional, the Z blatter changed it a, a little bit. You know, I remember playing that for a bit. But they were fun times. As, as a golfer, that was fun because you had to make shots. And and a lot of what we're talking about here is putting an emphasis at the professional level potentially is on the em- emphasis of making great quality golf shots. Absolutely. And, and then being able to determine through less friendly, less forgiving equipment, who the who the yeah. best of the best really is? Um, you you alluded to the um, the game that we had at Kingston Heath in February that Rocket won. Um, for those that don't know or hadn't seen what we'd done, we had a twelve hole tournament at Kingston Heath in February with old balls, lots of HP twos and some balladas and old wound balls, ten club limit, and we played in pairs. We got around the course pretty quick. Most people carried. Most people didn't lament the lack of distance in comparison to their performance with a Pro-V or a, a Chrome Soft or something else of that calibre and a 460cc driver. Um, and, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great fun. Your bad shots were maybe a little worse than they might be with today's equipment, but the good ones were still quite good. Um, and I think you're right. I think in terms of barking up that tree the spin profiles and the performance characteristics of those balls of, of 25 years ago, um, I'd like to see the game head something like that. I don't want it taken back to gutties. I don't want it taken back to the Haskell. I don't want it taken to hickories. 
um, that time when you didn't have to start stretching the old course into different postcodes, you didn't have T's on neighbouring properties, yeah. when that equipment was in play and the bedrock on which the game of golf is really built, the old course at St Andrews, equipment and that arena were in proportion it shouldn't move too far beyond those measures. I think you made a really important point there as well, Matt, back at the uh, rollback day was nobody missed the distance on that day. And for anyone listening who's, I know one of the uh, reactions we get a lot is don't take my yardage away because um, I, you know, I like hitting it 300 every now and again. But if everyone else is also brought back that 15, 20 yards or whatever it is, you're not going to miss that extra. And if you, if you really love golf and you love hitting golf shots, you'll find yourself hitting five irons again, six irons, maybe even the occasional three or four iron. And, and they're fun shots to hit if you can pull them off every now and again. Once again, and separates the good, the good players. It gives, a, it gives yeah. a good, the good ball strikers an advantage. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I know the reaction is that um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a great golfer myself, kind of, you know. I've been, I was a 20 handicapper for a long time until uh, recent times. So I know what it's like to be bad at golf and I know what it's like to want the equipment to be easier. But having that yardage taken off you, you're not going to miss it as long as it's a universal rule that's come in. So um, I think that's something a lot of people overlook when, when we start talking about rollback. They think about their game in relation to everyone else's being affected. But if it's a universal thing, then it's it's not something you'll ever miss again. And it's also going to make the round faster. You're not walking as far. You're not as far offline. You're going to lose less balls probably. There's just a myriad of advantages to bringing it back that percentage, whatever it might be. Definitely, definitely. And you, and and if there is a hole that is sometimes unreachable for some, we've got handicaps. Um, and we've got a range of tees. And, and it's funny, talking about this with people, the, the notion that some sort of recalibration of the game with revised specs regarding balls and clubs might also be accompanied by the shortening of one or two holes, their mind's just blown. They'll go, oh, hang on, no, that may, how could you possibly do that? And I'd, I find that lack of flexibility regarding changes within the game a bit puzzling at times. Um, and, and, and you can do that, so a hole that, all of us could think about different courses we play regularly and you think, well, yeah, I can play a forward tee there and it's still a testing hole. So Kingston Heath, many of us are familiar with. You come off that fifth green and you walk back, back, back to the sixth tee. Um, Say some ball and club specs were revised to the point where a lot of people found it hard to play that sixth hole. Their handicap would reflect that or you might not go back quite as far. You might have a tee that's 20 metres forward of where they'd normally tee it up from. And the round still flows. As you said, well, you don't walk as far. It's not an expensive change to make to that course and, and you're not smothering the course in rough, narrowing fairways, trying to compensate for equipment that's out of scale with a hole. My reflection back to that is just from a fun factor, you know, just taking a sort of helicopter view of the people that were there and just, you know, really spending some time glancing around as I did at the end. And we had a wide variety of people. I can't remember exactly how many people we had there, but, you know, we had Mike Ferroni, for example, golf pro one of victoria's best club pros ad avid vintage club player already but just loved it you know we had rocket we had some of the young guns down there you know lucas and a few other 
and there wasn't an unhappy face in the whole crowd. I don't know how everyone scored, but just people just loved it. They had a lot of fun. And, you know, if that's a yeah. small small sample and a small demographic of a wide range of golfers from elite level through to amateur level, which there were, that's a, that's a good sample to start with to suggest that you're onto something. Yeah, and that's one of the things we wanted to assess throughout the course of that day. How, how does that equipment stand up to that course? We were a bit nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, did people have fun? Could they score? Uh, would they would they miss their distance? Would uh, would they come back and say, "Oh no no no, this is amazing! Short game feels fantastic, and spin around the greens is fantastic." And oh, why did we we we, we were sort of hoping for positive reports, and and we did have a wide range of of, of uh, golfers, both age and skill, playing that day, and it yeah. was it was pretty universally positive. Let's talk about the golf courses for a second. So we talked about the old courses, the you know, the, the benchmark for, you know, the game and, you know, when you have to put tees back on the 18th and 17th and so on and so forth over roads and, and so, so on and so forth is a, is a challenge, which we, you know, want to try and preserve the integrity of all of those courses. Firm and fast. Yeah, when I say to you firm and fast on a golf course, and is that some of the part of the solution considering the technology not changing in the immediate future? What does that do? to the game does that change the look of a bryson DeChambeau hitting at 416 if we have wide firm fast and we get away from this american style bomb and gouge it's not going to happen i don't believe but you know what is, what would that look like and should that be more of an advocate towards that i think so from from an environmental perspective and water use yes, yes. um and from an accuracy perspective yes uh, uh, jeff ogilvie's talked about that and um written an article for Golf Australia magazine on very, very similar lines about how US PGA Tour setup basically dictates that people play a certain way and gear their games to the, the style of course that's before them. And that should they go play North Berwick or Brora every week or the old course, a baked out old course every week, that they would be going, those guys would be going back to their manufacturers and their sponsors saying, give me this, give me this, give me that, give me a spinnier ball. Give me a, a two iron and not a hybrid, um, and and yeah, their their method of play would definitely change. It would be geared more towards accuracy, particularly if they're playing dogleg holes on with firm fairways. You think of, I can't just needlessly bomb it forever on a straight line because I'm going to go through the fairway. Yeah, I, I think course setup plays a, a, a significant part in it, Ross. You guys have seen as many, if not more, golf courses than anyone I know collectively. Well, what it, what do you see? when you see golf courses and you're out there flying the drone and photography, doing taking um, photos, what do you see? In terms of new courses? Yeah. Uh, certainly the scale that they're being built on now, the big sort of destination courses that we try to get to for um, Caddy, for instance, um, Big Cedar Lodge was one that sticks out, uh, the new Tiger Woods course that's gone in there. The scale that that thing is built on is jaw-dropping, it's definitely not sustainable and it's definitely not um, something that other courses could replicate. It, this is out in the middle of Missouri and they've, they've had an unlimited budget to be able to build something to the kind of scale that um, you would expect a, a par five to challenge someone today. And it looks amazing and there's a hell of a lot of grass that has to be watered out there though. And um, I just trying to imagine that in an urban setting or 
um, trying to imagine retrofitting an existing course to that kind of scale, it's just completely out of proportion now. So um, definitely notice the, the latest openings are trying to cater to um, these, these massive distances. How, when is the message going to sink in about sustainability and making golf more sustainable? Because I, I, don't, I don't see that it's growing quick enough. When, when do you think that it's going to what's, – what's it going to take to make it tip to, for people to – you know, the masses, you know, the man, including manufacturers, including everyone involved in the game? Hopefully soon. In Australia, I feel like we can be one of the nations that drives it because we're a dry island continent. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to feel it more than many parts of the UK that enjoy a far greater rainfall, parts of the US that likewise are blessed with reasonable rainfall. I think it has to, it has to happen sooner rather than later. And I don't know if it's going to take a few course closures mm. or, or what it will be. People's mindsets are changing, particularly in the current climate and thinking about what's most important and what's sustainable and can I pair this back, can I pair that back, and I'm hoping that that applies to golf as well. There's a little bit of pressure on us golfers because we, you know, we're deemed to be, in some circles, taking up valuable green space just for, the, for our own pure and can be seen greedy benefit. You know, so you know, we've seen developments of golf courses with you know, walking parks and other integrated sort of community facilities in some of the new developments. Maybe that's a way forward. But, yeah, we are under a bit of pressure as, as golfers. Definitely. Um, you can't, from a golf perspective, you can't just keep growing and growing and getting longer and adding more back tees and taking up more land. Lots of clubs won't have a budget to increase staff numbers mow more square metres, fertilise more square metres, use pre-emergence on more square metres. We just can't sustain that. And with land becoming more and more valuable, yeah, there's going to be a bit more pressure on wide open spaces like like golf courses if they're, if they're not going to be usable for a significant portion of the population. There's been an issue with Moore Park in Sydney. Um, Sydney Lord Mayor has looked at that and turned up the heat in terms of trying to make that more accessible for the public and a nine-hole layout rather than an 18, from what I can gather. And, and golf can be a wonderful thing for the environment. I always try and remind people that there's, there's lots of different golf courses and clubs that are huge champions for significant environmental causes. Just this week, um, Tara Itty had put things up on their social media channels regarding an increase in the number of native birds, this New Zealand native bird, uh, ground-dwelling native bird called the Tara Itty or the fairy tern that was critically endangered before Rick Kane bought that property and established that golf course. Their numbers have risen significantly as a consequence of isolating uh, that colony and the golf course basically protecting them. We have people that come and visit Royal Melbourne every year and they're amazed by the, the bank of native vegetation that exists within those boundary fences that would have been long since eradicated from the, the, the metropolitan landscape in Melbourne. Mm. And, the, and RM's protected and preserved that flora. And there's lots of other courses throughout Victoria and Australia that could say exactly the same thing. Mm. So golf has a great environmental story to tell, but you're right, Ross, you, it can't just keep, that can't be lost amongst uh, a series of courses that keep growing and growing and growing to accommodate further flying golf balls. Does it all start with bifurcation and, you know, the pros playing a different ball? Is that the starting point? Well, I mean, it, it's looking that way. Um, as to whether that's a, a good way to go or not, it's, um, 
think me and Matt are sort of in agreement. We'd rather not see that kind of split in the rules. Um, you've got um, that quote from Frank Nobolo talking about the game being the pro game being more separated uh, from the amateur game more than ever today, and that's dangerous. Uh, people want to be able to watch pro golf and relate to it, and that's becoming more and more difficult. Okay. Um, so playing the same equipment, and and one thing with the idea of rolling back the equipment is that it's going to affect that top 0.1% of hitters more than it will um, the, your everyday golfer. So it'll it'll help to close that gap between the pro golfers and the very long hitting pro golfers and the everyday golfer. So you're helping to reduce that, um, that massive disconnect at the moment. Um, so it might be leaning that way in terms of bifurcation, but certainly as Matt was saying, it sounds like it's on the cards as a, as a way to start, but we'd like to see uh, a bit more of a universal approach. Mm. Other sports have, changed rules and changed concepts and i've cited before formula one as an example you know where they they change their rules very regularly to make the product better for the viewing audience and and make and bring more parity back to to the field you know because they've got their own issues in terms of sustainability factors for you know leading car development uh, sustainability factors in terms of cost management so when what they do to try and you know bring back some parity is change the, their form of what I think is their form of the golf ball, the tire, and they put a control over that. And you know they have a number of tires that you can use, but you can only use a certain type of tire and a certain type of tire um, in a certain way. So you've got a fast, intermediate, wets, and you choose to when you want to use those tires as an issue of the team, and that's part of your strategy. I think golf can take a little bit from things like that, you know, like you, you, you're allowed to change, you know, and, and I'm only talking at the pro level and I, I, and I get that you guys want it to happen through the whole game and I, I understand that and I, I agree in, in many respects. But I think if it changes at the pro level first, you know, there's plenty of examples that it can be done. And Absolutely. In, in other sports. Absolutely. Across a range of sports, there's been... Tennis. Tennis, yeah. A lot of people won't recall that tennis in the 70s, there were a couple of tennis players that brought basically double stringed rackets or what was called spaghetti rackets, a different stringing technique um, to light where they generated prodigious spin and very quickly tennis regulatory bodies said, no, this is not on, we're not up for this, Um, that's outlawed. One of the examples that I often cite is swimming with those buoyant laser full-length suits. They gave someone like me a more aerodynamic or more streamlined appearance in the water. And I shouldn't look like a porpoise in the water, but I would if I was wearing one of those suits and I'd also float a bit more. And like you were talking about with someone hanging with Adam Scott, I'd be able to swim faster if I was in that suit. And you think, well, I have no right to hang with that guy because I can't swim that fast. Mm. So that rule ended up changing in large part because my performance and the performance of anyone wearing that suit was more a reflection of technology rather than the inherent abilities and the innate physical characteristics of that swimmer. Golf's certainly going down that path where technology is dictating a little more than it should. And I agree with you, Ross. I think that the pro game, if there's some change that happens there, that will be strong enough and potent enough to influence trends within the amateur game. You'd mentioned golf balls from 
a generation past, one of the hopes that I had prior to the lockdown in Victoria was to take a similar group of golfers to those who participated in our rollback day off to a facility where there was a track man and a launch monitor and have a night of drinks with the same ball and the same driver and 30, 40, 50 people having a swing with this equipment and plotting a graph of swing speed, spin rates, driver carry and looking at the relationship of those variables. And it's my firm belief that that distance gain that we get with today's lower spinning balls is greater at the top end than it was with that previous generation of golf ball. So if you said to me, I'm going to change the spin dynamics of a golf ball at the top end so that Rory's still going to drive at 290, but Will Watt's still going to drive at 215, and Will might lose two, and my Nana might lose one. Well, she might pick up two, but Rory's going to lose 20. He's he's still going to gain that that optimization that he's gone through with his manufacturer, the swing instruction that he's gone through with his coach, the gym work he's doing is still going to be of benefit because he's reaping those rewards relative to his peers who are playing under the same specs. But that prodigious gap, that disconnect that Will was alluding to earlier between the amateur game and the pro game diminishes. The scale of the pro game then comes back towards a proportion where it's capable of matching the courses like Marion, it doesn't have to get smothered in rough, like Royal Melbourne, like Kingston Heath, where they don't have to add another 310 yards just to accommodate the World Cup, like the old course, where they don't have to add seven new back tees. To me, and I hope to every listener, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I put my you know, golf club manufacturers and golf equipment manufacturers hat on because you know, that's how I attain a living, as you know. I try and think of ways where it's a disadvantage. You know, if there was a bifurcation part, and once again, I agree with the concept of that you present to say that it should cover the whole game, but if it started at a bifurcation, people can still go and buy a pro-level ball if that's what they want to play. Definitely, and and they, they lose the ability to some degree to say this is the ball that Brooks Kepka plays or this is the ball that Tiger plays and then sell that to us. I'm very sensitive to that because like it or lump it, the equipment manufacturer is a significant part of this whole puzzle and this whole problem. Um, They'll still sell a prodigious number of balls. We'll still lose balls. We'll still scuff balls. We've got to go buy new balls when we play more and more rounds. No one wants to, not many people want to hit a ball that goes significantly shorter if the other guys in their foursome are playing a ball that's going to go further. I get that. So whether or not a reduced flight ball is mandated at certain courses or for certain tees or certain events, that's one possible way. I chuckle a little bit because any, any pro worth their salt is getting comped hundreds and hundreds and thousands of golf balls a year. So those balls are going to be supplied free of charge to all the pros around the world no matter what if there is bifurcation. No great loss there for the titleists of this world. And they're still going to make probably the best ball and they're still going to sell heaps to us teeing it up every Saturday. What about the idea of, you know, and you touched on it before, fewer clubs? Why can't they have tour events that start with fewer clubs? Why couldn't they throw that in now? So, okay, guys, this event, this event, and this event, they're, they're 10 club challenges. What's up with doing something like that? Is that too, well, is that too crazy? Would, is that too crazy I, an idea? I would love to see that. But if, if my business, if I was the CEO of Callaway or TaylorMade or someone else, Titleist, whoever, um, 
I'm working hard to try and make money on selling 14 club sets. I, mm-hmm. I would, I would put my, I would put pressure on the tour to try and style me that idea from the word go. And any staff player that I had carrying my bag or wearing my cap, I would warn them against saying that. I, I totally get that. From a, from a creativity, low cost entry, um, lighter bag, and you can carry more. Oh, carry more easily, I should say, because um, you've got nine clubs over your shoulder rather than 14. Totally makes sense. But my, my thoughts on that, you know, and I'll try and back it up here, and I didn't, I didn't suggest that maybe at the start that that would be a thing in its entirety, but just as a point of difference at certain times, and it wouldn't, I guess, necessarily take people away from having 14 clubs because this isn't translating into the, the amateur game. But for me, it goes back to the entry point of the game. When someone comes in to a place like mine or anywhere they go and get golf equipment, they come in thinking that they have to get 14 clubs, otherwise they don't qualify as a golfer. And therefore, if we have you know, the shining lights of the game, who are the people that draw people through, doing what people come in really needing, six or seven clubs, it would help, it would help the game. It would help grow the game. I think it would. I think it would. There's, a, there's an account I follow on Instagram, less than 14, Mm-hmm. Port Ferry's current club champion, Shane, four-time club champion down there, um, carries a steel-shafted persimmon four-wood, 10-club max. He's off plus one down there, shoots subpar almost as easily as he falls out of bed. Hits some wonderfully creative shots, and and it's a joy to watch him play. Mm. Um, most of our games would probably benefit if we took a few less clubs out. Nick Mills does that. Nick Mills says that he can either make decision errors or execution errors. And if he's got half as many tools in the toolbox, the likelihood of him making a decision error is less. Mm-hmm. And Ogilvy's spoken about that too, um, playing with a few less irons in the bag. He'll walk towards a ball and think, well, it's not a three iron and it's not a seven iron. So it's a five iron. I haven't got a four and a six in the bag. So it's a five iron. And End of story. Do I grip down? Do I take a bit off it? Do I try and smash it? And and it must be so much more an enjoyable form of the game for him to unleash that creativity that he possesses and just, rather than lasering a number and thinking, oh, it's this. And just for the benefit of anyone listening, and now I don't I don't know Jeff, but you know where what we all know is he's a member at down where I play amongst wherever else he plays. And the last three times I've seen him playing, and including when I you know played in the following group down at St Andrews Beach a couple of weeks ago. He's just carrying a little one-strap quiver with exactly that. Yeah. So this is this is a you know open champion, a U.S. Open champion. You know that's how he plays the game for fun. There's something in that. Absolutely, absolutely, guys. I, I hope we've uh, done the rollback alliance justice in our chat. I think we've covered a number of areas and probably talked about a couple of areas a couple of times. But uh, is there anything else that we should need to bring up? Is there anything else that you want to talk about, Will? Uh, I've just got Freddie Couples' average driving distance from the 1992 Masters victory when he was 32 was 251 metres. And when he played in the 2017, it was 270 metres. So I'll just leave that there. He's gained 20 metres over 25 years. He's probably gained 25 pounds and had a back operation between. and Yeah. So I, I just don't think we need that extra 20 metres. I think it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty straightforward and I don't, I don't understand why it's um, 
Like when Matt sends me quotes from Mackenzie from 1920s saying this, I, it boggles my mind that uh, we're, we're still talking about it and we, we haven't done anything about it. So hopefully um, people can, can uh, jump on board and, and check us out online and, and offer their support if they're in a grant and um, help build this movement towards making some real change. I'll certainly include all of that in the information and, and I was just you made me think about times gone by and a recent event that happened. Now, obviously, we didn't have the Open this year, but the RNA did a wonderful job of making an Open for us and they called it the Open for the Ages. And I don't know if either of you have seen any of that footage. Did I thought watch it, was, it? thought it was phenomenal. What did you enjoy watching the most? Oh, there was a, there was a lot of it. I actually, yeah, I got a lot more out of it than... Many did. I heard some people were a bit critical of it. Swings, swings of players from times past. Exactly. The different nature of of yeah of of play across those generations. That was one of the main takeaways for me. Yeah, there's a reason why we still like to go back and look at Jack, look at Sevy, look at all those guys, look at Greg Norman. There's a reason why we like to do that. Yeah, they were they were pure. They were they great swings and. Great imagination and um, wonderful, yeah, wonderful players. Golf's a creative game, and they were creative. They they played golf in its most creative and truest sense, in in a time that I can remember. Not no disrespect yeah. to the guys that played way back before our generations that we were even seeing it, but that was a creative time to play, and that was for me. It was an exciting time to come up and be a golfer and play golf and try and emulate some of those idols. Definitely. And now, as a elder statesman in the golf community, if you want to. Claim if I want to claim that, that's still the most exciting time that I go back and watch, and I enjoy. It is something, and and the the guys today are not to not to downgrade players of of the current era because they're they're creative as well. Yep. Um, I don't think we see it as much. There's probably less call for it. Um, and there's it's less hard reward to- for it as well. Yeah. Yeah, this, the, yeah, you've got a statistician within your team telling you that the, you don't even necessarily need to go down that path as well. Why would you go down that path? It's hard to convey that message clearly to a generation that's been brought up on a diet of the of the contemporary game. Um, yeah, guys like you and I, Ross, who are, who are closer to 50 than we are 30, um, we can sound a bit like old fuddy-duddies at times, <laughs> but it, it was... Yeah, we were, I think we were blessed to see what we saw at that time, definitely. Is that us? I think we might be done. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks so much, Ross. Thanks for, thanks for uh, giving us your time and, and allowing us to speak a little about what we've done. As, as Will said before, anyone who wants to jump on board and follow us either on Twitter or Instagram uh, or visit our website, we've tried to build up a little bit of an archive of, of resource material and a couple of um, articles that explain things succinctly on our website, delve into the issues a little bit regarding distance and, and the pro game and the amateur game there. So Rollback Alliance, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or our website, rollbackalliance.org, um, we would welcome you interacting with us or um, just looking at those things. Guys, thanks for joining us. And uh, until next time on the My Love of Golf podcast, thanks again. Thanks, Ross.